The human person, community, and communion. The 2015 release of Submission by the French novelist Michel Willebeck turned out to be something of an event. In no small part because the English translation, which fictionalizes the political rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in the France of 2022, happened to be published, or at least translated into English, on the very same day of the Charlie Hebdo shooting. Willebeck followed up with some incendiary comments about Islam, and there was a perfect storm of controversial PR. Now, few of the reviewers seemed to note that submission really wasn't so much about Islam, but was rather about the collapse of France itself, which, as the home of both Descartes and Voltaire, Foucault and Derrida, is something of the symbol of modernity and postmodern thought. In Submission, the novel, we find less a warning about Islam and more of a funeral oration for the contemporary West. Now, the protagonist, a not-so-subtly-named Francois, France itself, is a professor of literature. He's not particularly accomplished, neither does he regard his profession very highly, claiming, and I'm just going to quote throughout here without indicating what I'm quoting, claiming that the academic study of literature leads basically nowhere. Still, he continues, it's harmless in the main and can even have a certain marginal value for sales clerks at high-end boutiques for whom the study of literature carries positive connotations. Francois identifies himself with those gifted few, those who have the coveted promise of being a senior lecturer. Now, those of you in the academy know that tenure is the golden apple. One is the gifted few if you attain it. Yet, Francois says that he never felt the slightest vocation for teaching bemoaning that his 15 years as a teacher had only confirmed his initial lack of a vocation. Worse, his experiences with students taught him that he didn't like young people, being young implied an enthusiasm for life, a feeling that Francois never had. With respect to scholarship, the prospect in his word is cold and exhausting. For me, nothing mattered except which dinner I'd microwave while I watched the political talk shows on France 2. Now, a similar failure of enthusiasm carries over to Francois' personal life. Relationships are entirely ephemeral and pointless, a succession of girlfriends and hookups, each of them passing and unsatisfying. Of the now progression in his idea of serial monogamy headed towards the formation of a family, he has unreserved scorn. It is, he says, complete idiocy. Commitment and the heritage of children have no attraction for him at all. They're so irrelevant as to be not even rejected simply not considered. Now in the novel, he doesn't participate in the political turmoil. The Muslim Brotherhood is coming into power in France. All he does is open up a British bank account to keep his money safe and then heads off to the French countryside. It's the move, he says, of a rat abandoning ship. But rats are intelligent animals, he says. And so he heads for the southwest of France for no particular reason, since he says he didn't actually know very much about France. He had never really visited this country that he was, theoretically, a citizen of. Now, while great political turmoil shakes the country, Francois spends his time in the hotel room, watching TV and bemoaning, as a good modern person would, slow Wi-Fi connection. At last, he remembers that Huysmans, who's the study of his own research, had converted to Catholicism. And so, Francois heads to a medieval, cathedral, a medieval citadel hosting a famous Madonna, the so-called Black Virgin of Rocamadour. There he stays on and off for almost a month, habitually visiting the chapel of Our Lady. Of the statue, he writes, it's very strange. 
The same one who for thousands, for a thousand years had inspired so many pilgrimages, before whom so many saints and kings had knelt, it bore witness to a vanished universe. He spends the last day of his reveries before the Virgin, almost indicating a chance for renewal and retrieval for Francois, for France, before what he understands to be the beating heart of French Christianity, this ancient center of faith, of passions both natural, like national and patriotic pride, and supernatural, for redemption and for everlasting life. Before the statue, Francois hears a call to repent and to return, like the prodigal son, not just Francois the individual, but France itself. Western culture could come home to Our Lady. In place of pornography and microwave dinners, anime and hookups, time-wasting in television, will he accept hope and love? He won't. Even though he experiences something of a mystical vision, in which it seemed that the Virgin was rising from her pedestal and growing in the air, Francois rationalizes. Maybe I was just hungry. Maybe I'd forgotten to eat. And what I should probably do is go back to the hotel and have a few duck's legs, which he does. And he packs his car and he departs. The Virgin, he says, has power, but little by little, I felt her moving away from me in space and time and across the centuries while I sat there. I got up, fully deserted by the Spirit, reduced, and sadly descended the stairs to the parking lot. Now, Francois lives in what Charles Taylor has described as a disenchanted world. For us moderns, the cosmos is no longer full of spirits and gods, fairies and forms, but only causal forces which we harness to our own needs. Now, while this allows for unprecedented technical and economic progress, it leads, in the world, words of Taylor, to a wide sense of malaise at the disenchanted world, a sense that the world is flattened, empty, lacking meaning or purpose. Now, for Taylor, this is true even for those moderns who retain faith. Everyone, Taylor says, even religious believers, inhabit the world of what he calls the imminent frame, things reduced to imminence. It's a way of living in a self-sufficient, imminent order, bereft of transcendence, or at least a certain sort of transcendence. Such enframing, Taylor says, makes possible a vision of what he calls exclusive humanism, which accepts no final goals beyond human flourishing, nor any allegiances to anything beyond this flourishing. Now, of course, flourishing is defined in a reductive way. There really is, in that world, nothing more than the next iPhone, and the returns promised for economics, medicine, health, and social well-being. Now, in that picture, the contemporary West, at least as fictionalized by Willebeck, is trapped within the imminent frame and is thus an anti-culture. Not simply a bad or an inadequate culture, but an anti-culture which works against the human vocation. The imminent frame, which attempted to, quote-unquote, save the human things from the divine and the supernatural, instead replaces the natural and the supernatural things with technological reductions. In the end, it ends up jettisoning human flourishing for mere comfort and power. As we submit ourselves to forces and processes, we lose form, and the great institutions in which men and women live out their lives and become fully authentic, education, family, politics, religion, they become increasingly enervated, decadent, decayed, and moldering away, like our souls. 
I have a 16-year-old daughter who once found an article I, I had written which said, things are not as bad as you think, they're worse. And every time I give a talk like this, she, says to, she leans in and says, hey, Dad, things are not as bad as you think, they're worse. 16-year-olds, who can reason with them? Now, in a review of Willebeck, Mark Lilla of Columbia suggests that Willebeck is articulating not only the imminent frame, not just the world which is reduced without the supernatural, but also the isolation of the contemporary individual. Do a Google search for the words loneliness and epidemic, and soon you'll discover how alone people are in our society, with many reporting having not, not any friends that they think of as genuine friends. And this was before lockdowns and quarantines. Think how bad it is for many now. It's far, far worse. But as Francois suggests, that he's not really a citizen of France. Lilla suggests in his own book, The Once and Future Liberal, that we have lost all sense of what it means to be bound up in a common project as citizens and as a nation. As he puts it, Lilla, the old liberal dispensation, that of FDR, had as its image two hands shaking. But the new dominant image, Lilla says, is a rainbow, a prism which refracts a single beam of light into its constituent colors. That is, out of one, many, rather than the older hope, out of many, one. In doing so, Lilith says, there is no sense of we or citizenship. Instead, this is Lilith's words, we've become hyper-individualistic hyper, hyper and bourgeois, materially and in our cultural dogmas. Almost all the ideas or beliefs or feelings which muted or softened the old perennial American de demand for individualism and autonomy, the old checks on that have all but evaporated. What's left is thin or atomistic. Lilla says, personal choice, individual rights, self-definition. We speak these words as if a wedding vow. We hear them so often that it is hard for us to think or talk about any subject except in these self-regarding terms. It's an image, he says, referring to another Willebeck novel, of elementary particles spread out in space, each rotating at its own speed and following its own trajectory. I find that a powerful image. Elementary particles, each spread out in space, rotating in its own space and going in its own trajectory. Now, against that rather gloomy and glum image, there are certain truths of the Catholic faith. They're truths, so they're always true. They've always been true. And yet, their needfulness is perhaps especially acute just now. As the West creaks and go, groans farther along into post-Christianity, it neglects or truncates these truths, upon which the West depends for its basic cultural forms. But, as the form loses the spirit, or if you'd like me to be a slightly better Thomist, as the matter loses its form, it's unsurprising that the West becomes more and more Willebeckian, isolated, deratinated, atomistic, fragmented, and alienated. Now, what I'd like to suggest for your consideration this evening is that the Christian understanding of the person is a truth desperately needing to be rediscovered, reappropriated, and rearticulated for our time. Now, one can, of course, give a direct definition of the person. The person is an individual substance of a rational nature. That's true. I don't deny it. And yet, at the same time, that definition is not especially evocative. But perhaps you'll give me a few moments to explore the idea of persons 
a bit more with you. Uh, years ago when I was at Boston College, I was a young Protestant, uh, and I happened to have the good fortune of being in a study group with Peter Craved and Tom Howard and some others. And I was working in the library with a nun from Mother Teresa's order, and she invited me to lunch once. Fine, I go to lunch, and there is the, uh, there's a Jesuit waiting for me. She'd set me up. She, she told me once that she was praying for my conversion, and then she leaned into me and she said, my prayers are always answered. <laughs> One weekend, uh, I came to work at the library, and she said, I went to New York, went to St. Pat's, and I went to St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, uh, so it's all but guaranteed now that you'll enter the church. Okay, so here I am, here's this Jesuit, and he says to me, remember I'm a young Protestant, he says, what's the most important truth of the Christian faith? And I thought I was being rather clever, and I said, justification by faith alone, you know, very sort of bucky and argumentative. And he looked at me and he said, no, it's the Trinity. The Trinity is, of course, the most important doctrine of the faith. It's the doctrine of the faith in some ways. Let's think about persons through the lens of the Trinity. There's nothing new here. And yet, it's incredibly evocative to think about persons through the lens of the Trinity. Three persons in one being. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. And yet, they are all equally God and share equally in the Godhead, without any of them being reduced to being not God. And yet, the story goes beyond this. It's not just simply that they have an identity as God in the Godhead. There's also a distinction of relations between the three. The Father begets, the Son is begotten, and the Holy Spirit is spirated between the begetter and the begotten. St. Bernard has a lovely example. The Father is the one who kisses. The Son is the one who is kissed. The Holy Spirit is the kiss itself. Now, when you hear the idea of the Father being begetter and the Son being begotten, it's easy enough to imagine. You shouldn't imagine it. You shouldn't hold it. But it's easy enough to imagine why Arius would think that the Son is somehow less than the Father. The father begetting seems like creating. Being begotten seems something like being created. You can see, you can imagine why Arius would perhaps think of the son as not being equivalent with the father. But for this, the father gives in such a fashion that even though the son receives, the normal economy that we have between individuals where the one who gives is greater than the one who receives is not true. You've had this experience, I'm sure. I have. It's Christmas, and someone shows up with a gift that you were not anticipating receiving, and they hand you a gift, sometimes an especially generous gift. You know that horrible feeling when you have to say or admit, I have nothing for you? Now, on the one hand, you might feel incredibly loved, yes? What is the other possible alternative when someone gives you a gift you are not anticipating, especially if it was a remarkably generous gift? Shame, diminishment, obligation, or worse even, resentment. Because in our understanding, to give is to have a certain power over the other. But the Father loses nothing in the giving. It's not as if the Godhead is a hundred units. And the father gives some away and now has less. And the son receives some units and now is sort of receiving what he did not always already have, the Godhead, and is somehow dependent upon the father. They are co-eternally and co-equally God. Their 
personal relationship, the relation as persons, is gift and receipt that does not diminish the giver or diminish the receiver. In fact, so perfect is the giving and the receipt and the offering back of praise and love that the offering back and forth and back and forth, speaking somewhat loosely there, is the Holy Spirit itself. In other words, persons in the Trinity are not simply individuals who exist as substances who might enter into relations with each other. To be persons is to be relational. And it's to be for relation, and it is to have perfection in relationship itself. In fact, in the Godhead, it is the relationship which is their form, which is their perfection. Now, we, created in the image and likeness of God, learn something about ourselves, which is, as persons, we are not simply individuals who might then enter into relationship if we so choose. We are always already from a communion, the communion of the Trinity, meant and ordered towards communion. Persons are for relations. Now, the second image here is that which is, I think, articulated so beautifully by John Paul II in his Theology of the Body. Many of you will be familiar with this work. Forgive me for telling you what you already know. But I find this text uh, entrancing and intriguing, and I don't, never tire of speaking of it. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God creates the world in Genesis 1. We have things created according to their kind. Things are put into space, or things are separated, rather, into their proper place. And then each of those things are filled. So we have separation and then filling. Form and matter, if you'd like, in a certain sense. And God declares in that beautiful poetry, He speaks it, it is, it is good. He speaks it, it is, it is good. He speaks it, it is, it is good. And then we have that remarkable statement that God makes, not Adam, that it is not good for Adam to be alone, not good for man to be alone. There's something jarring in the story. Things are good, things are good, things are good, things are very good, and then suddenly they're not good. Why are they not good? Well, you know the story. They're not good because Adam is alone, the man is alone. And what is he meant for? Well, he's meant for communion. He's created in the image and likeness of God as is Eve. In Genesis 1, we're told that God created them in his image, male and female, he created them. But then it is not good for Adam, for the man, to be alone. Why? Does he not have a kind of communion with God? God has made him, after all. We're given images of Adam later walking in the cool of the afternoon with God in the garden. Is that not sufficient? Now, Adam's alone. He's clearly metaphysically an individual. We can identify him as this one. He's not that one or that one or that one. The evidence of this, of course, is the parade of animals. And God says it is not good for him to be alone. Now, John Paul II reads this as a kind of awakening of conscience or an awakening of consciousness, really, for Adam. God is teaching Adam that he is alone and not like the others. Now, you remember the story. The animals are paraded by sort of a strange, beautiful scene. I like to imagine it poetically, not literally, but sort of poetically. Adam is waiting in that great expectation, right, to find his helper. Here comes the giraffe, and Adam's slightly confused. It's a very long neck. Off it goes. Here comes another one. It's the zebra, very stripy. 
It's sort of like uh, you know, youth events at St. Charles Borromeo as you look around and everybody here's a zebra, everybody here's a giraffe, where's the one for me? Here comes the platypus, good, nice joke God, God was... Now, in the story you have to imagine that God is eliciting a kind of desire and awakening and maybe even a growing consciousness of Adam being alone. None of these are right for me. Think of that very powerful experience. None of these are right for me. And the corresponding sense of maybe I am not right for any of these. Adam can do nothing about it. God puts him to sleep, the rib is taken, in that biblical passage perplexing the young people forever as they count ribs and wonder what's going on. He awakens, there she is, and what does he cry out? At last, bone of bone and flesh of flesh. One like me, one for me, and one for whom I am. Adam is also made for communion. In fact, what it means to live well is to have a kind of capacity for self-gift, to give to the other and to be able to receive their gift in return. Adam is being taught that he is, in fact, in the image of the Trinity, being for relation. He is not merely an individual. He's not merely one instance of the species individuated by matter. He is a person and thus made to always go beyond and outside of himself to have presence to another and for the other to have presence to him. And of course, very soon in the biblical text, we're told that he knows her and she conceives. They are made for relation. The communion of persons is in fact some aspect of human flourishing and some aspect of human well-being. We're made for communion. Now, I'm articulating this because I think it's important to get the person right. We tend to think of the person as an individual who has a kind of sovereignty over herself, who then, from that position of sovereignty, chooses to enter into relation or others. And that's true insofar as it goes. But more profoundly than that, we're not merely individuals, but persons who are already made for that communion and who are called to it, beckoned to it, for whom the other elicits that desire of communion for them. It's important to get the theory right, to understand what we really are in our humanity and to live accordingly. I think the Trinity and the theology of the body help us with that. However, I'd like to suggest as well that our teaching and instruction on these matters cannot remain solely at the level of the theoretical. I'm a philosopher, I'm supposed to say, sure, sure, it works in practice, but does it work in theory? But I'd like to suggest instead that we move beyond the instruction of the theory of the person and wonder how to embody that teaching in our common lives. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting a competition between theory and practice. We need both, we need to do both well. But I do think that we have a unique opportunity, perhaps because of COVID lockdowns and loneliness, but also in part because of the larger story of the West playing itself out, if Willebeck is correct, if Mark Lilly is correct, of isolation and an inability to have a disposition towards communion. Trapped in the isolation of ourselves as individuals, we need to teach a better way. It seems to me, or I suggest for you, that many of our peers, given the current cultural deformation, have a hard time seeing what's good, even when it's there. According to Joseph Pieper, one of, my, one of my favorite authors, our eyes have gone dim. We struggle to see reality as good, as wonderful, as joyous. joyous. Not, says Pieper, because our physiological sense is impaired, we can see, 
but rather the very integrity of human existence is threatened by what he calls a kind of existential poverty. Our society is not in the main materially impoverished, but we are spiritually impoverished, or many are, existentially impoverished. We have thick wallets, but thin souls, starving souls, because we exist in the imminent frame. We need to become enriched ourselves and to help others be led into a way of existential richness, a way which is disposed to communion, which is that for which we exist. But there's a sort of catch-22 for many people. Being spiritually impoverished, many of us do not see that communion would be a good thing. And until we have a taste of communion, we cannot become existentially rich enough to desire it. So here are a few suggestions, some concrete practices that may be of assistance as we attempt to show a better way, a better way of community and communion itself, the communion of persons. First, keep the Sabbath. In fact, all my suggestions are really Sabbath suggestions. Things we could do to recover Sunday as a day of communion, not merely rest or entertainment or play, but as a day which is a kind of communion, oriented by and disposed to communion in the Eucharist, and then the fecundity of the Eucharist pouring forth. Another way of putting it, parents and priests and friends ought to exert the full range of their intelligence and their will to make Sunday a day of richness and fecundity, rather than just a day of catching up and shopping or laundry. Second, study and story, especially on Sundays. The reading of good books, especially spiritual reading, has made more than a few saints. But we tend not to study as much as we should. During a time in which many cannot see, it's possible that they must become gradually accustomed to the light. And so, we should read books which bring life to souls. Sometimes those souls are little, either as children or just because they are young in their progress or young in their journey, and they need to grow. And sometimes souls have a kind of blindness. In the Sunday reading, men love darkness rather than light, and they need to learn to see and to approve and to love the light as it is. Or maybe sight is the wrong metaphor. Maybe taste is a better one. Many of us need to develop the taste for the true and the lovely, in fact, there's a reason to think that the Latin word for wisdom, sapientia, shares a root with the word for taste, such that to have wisdom is to have a taste for the right things. So, maybe the first and most important gift we can give to those we love is a kind of taste, a wisdom to apprehend what is good, maybe perhaps especially by drawing upon the emotions, well-formed, educated, reasonable emotions. And those emotions tend to be to be formed by stories and images and symbols, and the faith has been so good at this. Now, such taste doesn't come from argument or theory in the end. You know that old saying, it's a cliche by now, but it's still a good saying, that Waterloo was won on the plain fields of Eton, meaning, of course, that the virtues given to young men at play determined the ability they had to govern themselves at war and at government. During the battle itself, there's no time to reason, to think, to ponder, to debate. You have to act. And you have to act from a firm and stable disposition, one that you already have. As Aristotle rightly teaches, it's in the beginning that so much depends upon. In fact, the beginning doesn't make, just make some of the difference, it makes all the difference. For habits and tastes shape so much of what we will do when it counts. You probably know the line from C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man. As he's sort of riffing off Plato, the tripartite soul there. Lewis, as the king governs by his executive, so reason in the man must rule 
must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element. The head rules the belly through the chest of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. The chest, magnanimity, sentiment. These are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man, he says. Now, appetites, as you may know, I've been told this, I haven't experienced this, are powerful and tricky things, dangerous in fact, and before you realize it, appetites can be governing your life. But the person who has spirit, thumos, is able to be disappointed or even angry at the very idea of acting shamefully. That person is the one most capable of acting and living well over the long haul. And so the books we choose for ourselves, the books we would read to our children and friends and grandparents on a Sunday afternoon, those are the sorts of books which teach us how to love and what sorts of things are lovely. Naughty Peter Rabbit. The moral heroes and villains in Plutarch. Stories of King Alfred. Brave little toy canoes that make their way downstream in a journey to the sea. Persistent turtles in Aesop. Those are tales and stories which are alive, not merely in the sense of being interesting, but they teach us how to go about living well. In the end, a bookish life is not so much about knowing books so much as it is about living well. We shouldn't be try to be pedants, but rather persons. And the point is to be to live well, not merely to be well-read. Now, if Sabbath is first and study and story is second, then the third suggestion would be beauty. One of the great fractures of contemporary society is its loss of beauty. And perhaps no society within our larger culture has experienced this loss more abruptly than Catholics, whose traditions of architecture, art, and sacred music was broken in a great calamity. It's no accident that film and television tend to portray religion, either good or bad, as Catholic. And it's no accident that the Catholicism that they love to portray is the Catholicism of chants, polyphony, stained glass, Gothic architecture, votive candles, Caravaggio, St. Peter's. Because one notices these things, they strike us as being shocking or notable or even awful. Now, too often the word beauty implies a certain snobbishness. I don't intend that. We're not hoping to have a kind of dilettante smattering of co cocktail party conversation about cave drawings, opera, and the hammered dulcimer. Those are all interesting things, of course, I guess. I don't know what the hammered dulcimer. Those other things are pretty interesting. But the real goal of beauty is to put us in touch with reality, with the deep, wondrous truth which beauty reveals, so that we can care about. If goodness is, is being as it is desired, beauty is being as it causes delight. To have the beautiful is to have the world as a cause of delight. And when delighted, we attend. When delighted, we feel the call of reality, and it deepens and stretches and grows our little souls, and accustoms our blind eyes to the light. Fourth, and in some ways, I would suggest the culmination of the first three, that at which they aim, the one that I really care about. I think that the fourth practice which we ought to double down on and become really good at if we're not already, is feasting. Catholicism loves stuff. It loves matter. It's a religion of water, 
and wine and food. Salvation comes through bread, which is no longer bread. And our entire life is organized around a meal. The space of our churches is organized around the place of the meal. The old neighborhoods were organized around the churches and the place of the meal. Everything in our life, the source and summit of our life, is a meal. The great feast, the great celebration. It's no accident that when we feast, with the meaning of those feasts is a kind of extravagance, a kind of recognition of the magnanimity of God. Remember, a God who begets, who pours forth personhood as gift, and the sort of gift which spirates forth as the Holy Spirit, and the kind of person who continues to create and say that it is good. That's God. Now, when one feasts, one doesn't count the costs. You can't feast if you're counting pennies. One feasts because it is good to do. A feast is like training for the Eucharist, the training to be, with all due difference, like God who gives and delights in the gift, the training to have joy. Eucharist, in the end, is a celebration of communion. Eucharist just is communion. If we are made for communion, it is no accident that what God offers us every day is communion with him through a feast. Nothing could be more fitting or appropriate to the nature of the triune God than to offer us something of the share of God's own inner life in a feast, an endless outpouring of gift, because that's what the divine person not just does, but is. Perhaps I need to put this all more directly. I'm suggesting that we need to outjoy our cultured despisers. Outjoy our cultured despisers. So our Sundays should be full of feasting, and especially feasts with dancing. Not the terrible, awful, isolating dance of the contemporary nightclub, but communal dancing. I want to be, I want to be concrete here for a moment. You can do this at home. Find a friend. Aristotle, remember, has three sorts of friends. Friends of pleasure, friends of use, and friends of the good. Find a useful friend, one who plays the piano. Someone who plays the, the, the violin. Someone who knows how to play, of all things, the accordion. I don't know. Push back the couches and dance on a Sunday afternoon after Mass. Will you allow me, embarrassingly, to quote myself from something I wrote before? You have to, because I'm up here. Here's something I wrote before. It was an ironclad rule of the schools and religious communities of my youth that dancing was forbidden, a prohibition enforced with the same edict, with same rigor as the edict to not drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. So I grew up not dancing, and I'm a terrible dancer. My children find me embarrassing when I dance. I have more enthusiasm than skill. Recently, at the time when I wrote this, my wife and some friends threw a party culminating in traditional line dancing. I had not done that before, and I went to the party somewhat hesitant. But there we all were, jammed together in an overheated room, stamping and clapping, bowing and twirling to the fiddle and guitar. Mostly, though, we were exulting. I held my youngest daughter to her shrieking delight as her older sister and I dosy doed and promenaded, and a triumphant son somehow convinced an older, quite pretty, partner to stoop down to him. Unlike other days, teenage boys could not escape their mother's arms, and I saw moms so jubilant and merry and relieved at this feat that they were paraphrasing Simeon, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. Grandfathers danced with granddaughters, husbands and wives, friends with friends. 
a few yearning adolescents with hearts beating time to another more ancient reel. In that sweltering, overcrowded room, you could hear the music and see us leaping, joined in circles, feet rising and falling in mirth, the association of men and women holding each other by the hand or arm. We were, I was, drunk with it, flushed of body and soul, delighted with the others, thrilled with reality. We were not, as I had feared, ironical or skeptical, but approving. We approved in the old sense of the term, and that we recognized goodness, probus, and we loved it, we willed it. We willed that it should be, that it should exist, that it should continue. In the handing off of one partner to the next, we handed on, traditio, the rhythms of the good reality that had preceded us, following the patterns long set down by others, and it was good. On another occasion, at a parish dance, I wrote this, quoting myself again. I, I was with several dozen members of my parish celebrating Oktoberfest. Lederhosen in beer, a roasted pig, oompa-pa. My son was so proud, so manly, so roosterish, as he led his older and younger sisters around the floor. Never mind that he knew none of the steps. Most strikingly, my youngest wove and bounced her way around, joining eyes and hands with other dancers somewhat willy-nilly. She did not care. Hers was a deep and childlike sense that all was well, all was well, all manner of things were well, and she could keep the feast. That's the way of affirmation. And it's not shallow optimism. It's not just a sense of, oh, we're having a nice time here. Nor does it deny the tragic. And still, festivity lives in approval. Even the feasts for the dead depend on the faith that all is well with the world in the end. What I'm suggesting is that we outjoy because we want to learn and pass on normalcy. We want our, to know and our friends to know families to know that spring flowers and public dancing are in fact educations and romance. We want that. We want that for ourselves and our friends. And we want them for no other reason than they are good. To celebrate good things as they are meant to be celebrated alongside the trained and training eyes of parents and culture and a genuine cultural inheritance. I'm startled how often I talk to young people, being no longer young, I get to say such things, and how many of them tell me, I find this just a grievous wound, how many of them tell me that they feel like they've been robbed of their inheritance. By which I don't think they mean material inheritance or the estate of their grandparents. I think what they mean is they've been robbed of the cultural form which trains them to see the forms which had been there before and which taught a sense that all was well and things were good. But how are we going to learn to live, to love, to taste, to be wise, to enter into the deep, beating, ordered loveliness of a reality which, because it's from the triune God, and depends at every moment on the triune God saying, yes, let it be, it is good. How are we going to discover the deep, ordered loveliness of that world, so beautiful as to astound, if we don't offer it? It is not going to be offered by the dreary anti-culture of our time, so ably summarized and fictionalized by Willebeck. The anti-culture would take all of that away. It would turn children into consumers, the innocent into the experienced. It would turn the wondering and delighted sense of things being good into the skeptical and the cynical. It turns persons into tools. This, this we reject. 
because we believe that of all things in creation, only persons were willed for their own sake. This is the teaching of the faith. Of all the things in in the created order, only persons were willed for their own sake. And to not understand that persons are made for communion with God, and that is good, is to miss the point of life. I'd like to ask you to consider how to offer community in an embodied way to your young nephews and nieces, your students, your parishioners, your friends. I'd ask that next Sunday, because of the Trinity, because God is who God is, that maybe you start small, read some poetry aloud after lunch. Maybe make an old recipe you remember someone in your family cooking on Sundays. My father-in-law talks about Sunday gravy, Italian red sauce, that would be simmering on the stove as they left for Mass. Mass meant the Eucharist, but it also meant gravy, the good stuff, Sunday gravy, the best his mother had to offer. So Sunday left a good taste in his mouth. Do that. For the Sunday after that, plan a dinner party with friends, not to impress them, but to have a Sabbath feast. Turn off your TV that day. It's not worth watching the Washington football team anyway. Buy some good wine. Have some friends to dinner. Serve Sunday gravy. The Sunday after that, Invite your priest over for dinner. Read the poetry, serve the good food. Perhaps sing a folk song or the Salve Regina after dinner. Sunday after that, learn a new dance step. Best if you have live music. Make the Sabbath sing. Make it taste really good. Make Sabbath be like the way God is, generous and delightful. God in the Catholic understanding just is A community of love and joy. That is what God is, a communion of love and joy. He doesn't just have joy. He doesn't just have love. God is love. God is the endless, ceaseless, eternal outpouring of love. That's what the Trinity is. But we won't be able to recognize God as God is if we ourselves don't have a taste for joy and love, for generosity and hospitality, of community and communion. And our culture is not going to help us a whole lot. But Catholic culture has always been pretty good at this. So, make Sundays Catholic, so that you, your children, your friends can taste and see that the Lord is good. And to do so, you'll have to provide yourself and your friends a life vibrating with communion. You remember those great lines from Bellick about Catholic life? Wherever the Catholic sun doth shine, there's always laughter and good red wine. At least I have always found it so. Benedictimus Domino. Thank you very much.